Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long I journey to this moment. Really Thank you so much. It's an incredible honor. Naturally, indebted to And the Oscar goes to. Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy! Hello! Wow, we're back! (laughs) Did you think you'd ever hear from us again? What a crazy, crazy time. Oh my heavens. Uh, Thanks for hanging in there, guys. (laughs) Yeah, so if you're listening to this... Uh, the strike is over, but <laughs> right now it's not. <laughs> yeah. So just to give you a little clarity before we get into this episode too far, we are recording this during the strike. Um, I have gotten permission from SAG-AFTRA to continue to work on the podcast. So long as we are not releasing new episodes during the strike for two reasons. One, uh, I am okay to record as a sag after member. I'm okay with that. And secondly, as long as we are not promoting materials that are considered struck work during the strike, then it's okay to record and release them later, um, at least be- in our situation. And I will say it is a very specific situation that we got special permission for um, because we are our own producers. We have full control over our release schedule. So that's a little disclaimer. While you are happily celebrating and listening to this podcast and enjoying movies and posting all about them, we are not. <laughs> and enjoying the the fruits of all the struck struckness yes. that everyone worked so hard to fight up against the big boys. Yeah. Good job, everyone. You did it. Oh man, I can't imagine what that's gonna feel like. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It is both our present and our future. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, But if you're listening to this, uh, we've released an episode about the strike being over, so you can hear our present day thoughts there. But for today, we are both past and present talking about the 56th Academy Awards and Best Picture winner, Terms of Endearment. Wow. So much has changed. Yeah. Because you have never done that. I was once just before. gonna say I went for that and I don't know why I did. I've never said that part of the podcast before. It's a new world we live in. <laughs> Labor unions have returned to power. Uh, CEOs are a thing of the past. Yeah, power to the people, man. <laughs> Kristen's doing announcements. Wow. Good work. <laughs> Um, But before we get too far into all of this, uh, we have to bring you the Penny news. Yeah, the news about Penny, a pup date. So one bit of the news is that uh, currently in our present and our past, um, I am on the East Coast. Uh, Hopefully I'm still on the East Coast once the strike ends, because that would mean the strike is over very soon from this moment. Um, But I'm on the East Coast working on something on a project um, and so I don't know what is going on with Penny every day yeah. like I normally do. I've got all the news. I hold all the cards these days. <laughs> wow. She's doing intros. <laughs> She's got a new deal. I'm finding my power. Yeah. But so I'm still here in California doing my thing, you know, 
uh, with two pups now. I'm a, a single mother to two dogs, and uh, it's been quite the whirlwind. Um, but specifically, since this news is about Penny Dearest, uh, Penny has been having a rough go of it lately. Mostly Uh-oh. because she just, she misses the consistency. She misses her father. She misses having us all together and like knowing what's going on. Cause one of the main problems is my schedule's gotten turned upside down because usually like, you know, one of us is home during the day. One of us is home at night and now it's just me. So I'm trying to plan out my schedule. So I'm not gone both in the day and in the night so that they're not mm-hmm. like stuck home by themselves for hours and hours and hours. But this has really thrown Penny for a loop. She is not used to it. And the first week after Zach left, poor pup, she just like thought everyone who walked by was maybe you. Whenever mm-hmm. like someone would like close the garage door, she'd like perk up and run over to the door and just like stand there kind of waiting for someone to come in. And of course it wasn't. She was always disappointed. <laughs> and our first like week together. So Penny sleeps in the bed with with us and then Bosley has his own little bed that he likes to sleep in but Penny and I were sleeping together and she like didn't want to sleep in Zach's spot because she thought he was coming back as if she was sleeping mm. on my feet like she normally does Poor puppy. and she kept standing up and circling around and looking at the door and panting and I was like it's just us pup it's just us <laughs> girls <laughs> let me be enough for you <laughs> So she's been stressed. We're adapting. We're getting more used to it. I'm trying to be snuggly for her and available for her, but she definitely misses her papa. Mm. Poor Penny. Yeah. But we're getting through. It'll Good be job, okay. pup. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we get into the 56th ceremony? Yeah. Man, I feel rusty. Like... <laughs> If, I know it's been a long time weird. since we've recorded. Yeah, I, it's definitely the longest break we've had since we started this podcast. Obviously, um, yeah. And I just like feel weird. I'm. It's hoping... been a long time since we watched this movie too. Yeah, well, because we so we watched this movie, we were prepping the episode, all that kind of stuff, and the strike happened, and we didn't know what we were allowed to do, and so we waited to get news back from SAG about what we were allowed to record or not record, which is why it's taken us so long to actually record this episode. So anyways, let's get right back into it, folks. Yeah. So today we are talking about the 56th Academy Awards and Best Picture winner Terms of Endearment, uh, which, you know, it's a very classic 80s movie. You know, it has all of the themes that we've been exploring over this decade. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like very, very similar to those like other family dramas that we've been talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. But this ceremony uh, was held on April 9th, 1984 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, as they've been for forever. Uh, of course, it's on Classic. A, uh, it's, you know, back to the normal stuff. Uh, this one is produced by Jack Haley Jr. for the third time. Oh, uh, I've talked about him a couple of times in the past. Um and his uh, shows have been very successful. I will say this particular ceremony is not a super interesting one. So there's not a whole yeah. lot to report on. And that's kind of the general consensus. I pulled some quotes from different critics and stuff. And they're like, this is just so boring. It didn't even have anything go wrong at all. Which Uh-oh. is good and bad. You know, television is fun when it's like the magic of live TV. And you don't know what could happen. But they need the drama. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, it was directed again by Marty Pasita, who has been our classic guy for a long time now. Uh, Johnny Carson also hosted the show for the fifth time. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's kind of become the mainstay. People just, they like him. He's classic. They know what they're getting into with him. He's a very safe choice. So he's been around. He's not too controversial or anything. So yeah, yeah. One of those just classic nighttime TV guys, you know, has the jokes, all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Also, musician Quincy Jones served as the musical director for this ceremony. And he got to conduct the overture for the orchestra at the beginning of the show. But yeah, just like a really cool step forward in terms of diversity in uh, positions of leadership in the academy uh, and as part of this ceremony. So I thought that was really remarkable. I know I don't talk a lot about the musical direction uh, or even like many of the other positions affiliated with producing these ceremonies, but Mm-hmm. Like all productions, there are a lot of people involved. And so it's really cool. I mean, I'll talk about this more as we go along because um, there are some conductors uh, and musical directors that are very interesting. But Quincy Jones being the first one that's really caught my eye, um, I thought that was pretty neat. Well, and he is like one of the m- most prolific black conductors and composers oh yeah mm-hmm. ever mm-hmm. i mean he's one of the most awarded um and he's done i mean he's also done a lot of just television throughout his career um including yeah. stuff for like the emmys and the grammys and all that kind of stuff so yeah watch his documentary uh, or the documentary about him uh it was produced and directed by his daughter of course rashida jones <laughs> um but it's really i mean it's great if you want to learn more about him. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, he's an amazing musician. Uh, this telecast garnered 42.1 million viewers in the U.S. Uh, this is a 21% decrease from last year. Uh, and also, It's crazy because I still can't like fathom that that many people could be watching it. I know, right? It sounds and that's still like a many. decrease. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty low in terms of like ceremony viewership. Um, it also had lower Nielsen ratings too, about 30.3% of households watching with a 50% share. Honestly, this is all because the movies that are nominated this year just didn't hit super hard. Um, yeah. That was kind of the general consensus from different critics was that like, Nobody felt super passionate about the films that came out this year. And so there just wasn't as much interest in seeing how things would shake out. It's one of the first few years where the trend is starting that like the public and the critics are starting to like go separate ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, about this stuff, uh, critic Patrick Taggart said about it, quote, By now, after a week after the fact, it is a matter of record that Monday's Academy Awards show was without the dullest ever. The Oscar went to the predictable choice in every case, and not only were there no surprises among the awards, there weren't even any of those deliciously embarrassing moments that make live television what it is. Kind of like I was saying earlier. I guess I remembered that from him saying that. Uh, Also, film critic Stephen Hunter said that uh, it was, quote, one of the crispest and most swiftly paced shows in recent years. Uh, He enjoyed its greatest asset in the return of Johnny Carson to the role of Master of Ceremonies. Mr. Carson, of course, was in top form. So, like, it's one of those things where some people like that. Some people like that it's just smooth sailing. We're doing the classic thing. There's nothing to complain about. So, you know, take it however you feel. In the end, Hmm. this ceremony received four Emmy nominations and won an Outstanding Art Direction for a Variety Program, which went to Roy Christopher. That's another facet I haven't really gotten to talk too much about is uh, art direction. 
believe it or not, people have to design the sets and everything, the music and the lights and all that stuff for a ceremony like this. So, wow. You know, one of these days we'll get into more of that kind of stuff. But uh, just some other stuff about this particular ceremony. Um, This was the first Oscar ceremony where the voting rules were announced at the end of the telecast as opposed to the beginning. Huh. Yeah. Just like a little point there. Uh, Well, and at this point in history, they don't. I mean, they don't share the voting rules with anybody. No. Yeah. And my guess, at least my like assumption about this is that at this point, it's been around for 56 years. So people kind of who have been watching this know how it works. Um, And so it's not something that they need to take time at at the like beginning, because the beginning obviously is the most important part of the show. It's where they do their big opening number and all that kind of stuff. So. But a lot of people now in like modern present day don't know how the voting works 100 percent, yeah Mm -hmm. maybe they should bring it back yeah that's a good idea um this is also the first award show in history to use a computer generated graphic timer uh as like a clock to notify awardees how much time they had to give their speeches before the time was up so it's like it's the first time that for this ceremony they're using a clock on the stage that people can see who are on the stage to know what their timing is um, so oh it was displayed on a large TV screen at the front of the stage that was controlled by the assistant director. And what's, you know, the little controversy here is that this person has the discretion on whether to activate it or not, depending on the importance of the award, because uh, it was just oh programmed for 30 seconds. So it was like the person could hold out until they're like, oh, OK, it's getting long and then start it. Or they could start it from the second the person walked up to the stage, depending on how valuable they thought the awards and the speech were. Um, huh, interesting. Which has been kind of adjusted over time. But this is the first go of it. And that's what ended up happening is just one person had the power. Uh, and this has become like a staple for almost all award shows. Uh And that's kind of why the music starts to swell is when the people who are on stage ignore the clock and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Also, just interesting, this year there was no makeup category, even though it was only created two years ago. Um, And I talked about this a lot during, like, when I was talking extensively about the makeup category and all that kind of stuff, that there there has to be enough films to qualify for it so that there can be voting and all that kind of stuff. And it just seems like there weren't this year. So there was not a category. Interesting. Um, Also this year, the Academy surprised Gene Kelly with a replacement Oscar after his was lost in a house fire in 1983. So just a couple years ago. Um, This was a surprise to him. So he was one of the presenters that night alongside Ray Bulger. And um, so they went up to begin their presentation. And as they did, Academy President Gene Allen appeared on the stage to give him the replacement Oscar. Uh, Well, that's cool. Yeah, which is nice. It had his name on it again. So, you know, I mean, and he's like a golden boy of the Academy. So makes sense that they would want to honor him. I wonder if it like melted or if like... It somehow just got lost in the rubble. Yeah, I mean, it could be either. I didn't look too deeply into it. I mean, they may not even know. Yeah, right. You never know with that kind of thing. Uh, So this year, James L. Brooks uh, wins for Terms of Endearment, and he becomes the third writer, director, producer to win three Oscars for the same film. The two who have done this previously were Billy Wilder for The Apartment at the 33rd Academy Awards in 1960. So winning Best Picture as a Producer, Best Director, and Best Writer for either Adapted or Original Screenplay. 
Additionally, uh, Francis Ford Coppola for The Godfather Part Two at the 47th Academy Awards in 1974. And this has been accomplished a couple of times since, specifically with uh, Peter Jackson for Return of the King in 2003, the Coen brothers for No Country for Old Men in 2007, Alejandro Gonzalez Enaritu for Birdman in 2014, uh, and then Bong Joon-ho also did this with Parasite in 2019, and they wanted they had like a bunch of notations about this, that uh, even though Parasite did also win international feature, that went to Korea. The country of Korea is like right. who wins that award as opposed to Bong Joon-ho. Uh, and then uh, just very, very recently, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert for uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once in 2022 at this most recent hmm. one. Cool. So just a, an interesting thing. I think it's cool when those things come together because it goes to show that it's like a complete package, you know? Yeah, um, right. I, I don't know. I just think that's pretty neat. This year, um, the film Fanny and Alexander becomes the most awarded foreign language film uh, at the time. Uh, this is, of course, an Ingmar Bergman film. So it's a you know classic. It did really well at the Academy Awards. It won four. Uh, two other films uh, match this as well. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 2000. And then most recently, the one I just mentioned, Parasite in 2019. And then very, very recently, the newest adaption of All Quiet on the Western Front also won four awards. I think it's hmm. funny that it's like four across the board. I feel like that's the max for now, you know? Well, and some of those, I mean, even Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I mean, one, like we're nominated for a lot more awards. Absolutely. Uh-huh. So they definitely had a chance to get yeah. more, but. Yeah. All Quiet on the Western Front was as well. Same with Parasite. Like there, and mm-hmm. with very realistic odds too of winning yeah. more awards. So yeah, pretty great. You know, film mm-hmm. is an international language. <laughs> Uh, The next thing I wanted to touch on that is a little bit of a sensitive topic, but I would be remiss to not bring it up, uh, is uh, this year, Linda Hunt wins Best Supporting Actress, uh, and she becomes the only person to win an Oscar for playing a cisgendered character of the opposite sex. So she, Mm. in the film The Year of Living Dangerously, she plays the character Billy Kwan, who is a man. Uh, and this film is like based on a semi-true story. Uh, there were real people, that kind of thing. Uh, it has Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver in it. I have not seen this film. So I also should preface this with that. I don't know how the film does it. Uh, so I can't like comment on that particularly. Um, but she in this film, she is a woman. She identifies as a cisgendered woman. And she is playing in this film a cisgendered man. Um, And so she wins this award for that character. Um, Hmm. And there has been some criticism for this. Um, Less, I think, uh, at least from the articles I was reading, I think people may have something different to say if it happened now as opposed to then. But people seem to not care too much about her playing a man. I think what was a little bit, what was honestly much more offensive is that she's playing an Asian Australian person and she is a white woman. Oh, so, sure. You know, all around, it's a uh, quite the bend. Um, huh. Interesting. And here's how it kind of happened. I mean, I don't want to get too much into it because it's, you know, not something I want to spend a lot of time on. Um, but Peter Weir, who was the director for it, uh, this was his quote, uh, quote. She said, could you rewrite it for a woman? 
Um, I said it would change the whole story. There was silence. Could you play a man? Now there was a really long silence. Only if you believe in me, she said. So we took the plunge. Um, And it was the kind of thing where leading up to her casting in this film, they had auditioned a couple other people. They ended up casting someone and it didn't work out. And they were pretty desperate to find someone to play this very specific character. And also another thing to note about her is that she is four nine. She's a very short person. And this character oh, wow. uh, is, has dwarfism and she also has a like variation on dwarfism herself. She has a very deep voice. So there's a lot of like very unique factors to her playing this character. Um, mm-hmm. And when they saw her perform, she was very much like, I am not going to play like I, I don't want to like feel the need to be masculine in this way. I want to play the character the way I want to play it. And my my issue with it, less than that, is more of she does end up playing an Asian man, <laughs> which right. is a uh, yellow face through and through. But about this, Roger Ebert wrote for the Chicago Sun Times. He said, "Quote: This is what great acting is—a magical transformation of one person into another." And then uh, Vincent Canby said about it, quote, that the, this is talking about the cross-gendered casting, quote, it works to the film's advantage. It's Billy's fate to play God and gods are, if not androgynous, then not necessarily condemned to a single sexual identity. Um, in this film, he's like kind of the matchmaker of like, whatever. So all hmm. this to say, it's kind of a weird thing that happens. And I don't know. She's the only person who has won an Academy Award for playing just like not playing a trans person, but playing a cisgendered person that is not the same sex as them. So hmm. there's that. And the last thing that I wanted to mention today that I wanted to end this segment on is that this year, um, Best Original Song co-winner Irene Cara becomes the first black woman to win an Oscar in a non-acting category. Huzzah. Yeah, which is a great milestone. Um, and... To be fair, there are not going to be a lot of them for a ser- like a serious amount of time. Uh, and so yeah. congrats to her for this because it is a very monumental award for her. Um, yeah. But yes, it's a good thing. Congratulations. Um, and so with that, I just wanted to go through our Academy Award winners, uh, as always. So, of course, Best Picture goes to Terms of Endearment. And Best mm-hmm. Director goes to James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment. Best Actor goes to Robert Duvall for Tender Mercies. Best Actress goes to Shirley MacLaine for Terms of Endearment. Best Supporting Actor goes to Jack Nicholson for Terms of Endearment. Best Supporting Actress goes to, as I've mentioned, Linda Hunt for The Year of Living Dangerously. Best Screenplay written directly for the screen goes to Tender Mercies, Horton Foote. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I didn't didn't know that. Good Uh, for him. Yeah. Best screenplay based on material from another medium goes to Terms of Endearment, James L. Brooks, based on the novel by Larry McMurtry. Best foreign language film goes to Fanny and Alexander from Sweden. Best documentary feature goes to He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing. Best documentary short subject goes to Flamenco at 515. Best live action short film goes to Boys and Girls. Best animated short film goes to Sunday in New York. Uh, which I also wanted to mention that it is up against the classic Mickey's Christmas Carol. Uh-huh. Like, the like nice lawn one with, you know, Scrooge McDuck and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't win. So congrats to Sunday in New York for pulling ahead. 
Best original score goes to The Right Stuff. Best original score or adaption score goes to Yentl. Best original score goes to Flashdance. What a feeling from Flashdance. Best sound goes to The Right Stuff. Best sound effects editing goes to The Right Stuff. Best art direction goes to Fanny and Alexander. Best costume design goes to Fanny and Alexander. Best cinematography goes to Fanny and Alexander. And best film editing goes to The Right Stuff. Uh, There are also a couple of additional awards. There's an honorary Academy Award given to Hal Roach uh, for, quote, in recognition of his unparalleled record of distinguished contributions to the motion picture art forum. So congrats to him for his many, many, many years as a producer, director, everything from basically the beginning of film stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award uh, goes to MJ Frankovich. Uh, who, yeah, he just did a lot of stuff for the industry, all that good stuff. Uh, and then there is a special achievement award given out this year for the visual effects in The Return of the Jedi, which is given Huzzah. to Richard Edlund, Dennis Murin, Ken Ralston, and Phil Tippett. Uh, so congrats for that. I know that that, like, they did get some nominations, but uh, I think it's good that they recognized some of those achievements that stand out beyond the rest, you know? Yes. So in the end, um, Terms of Endearment had five wins with Fanny and Alexander and The Right Stuff closely behind with four each and Tender Mercies with two. But as I mentioned, it's kind of like a slow year. There are some films that like you may recognize today, like The Big Chill or Flashdance or even Yentl, um, Return of the Jedi, of course, as well. But generally speaking, it was kind of predictable. A lot of people felt like they knew what was going to happen going into it. There weren't a lot of upsets or big surprises. So, and so with that, uh, I will pass it off to you to talk to us about the film terms of endearment. All right. So on with my part of the show, (laughs) Uh, starting with the year in film, 1983. All right. Uh, Of course, going through births, debuts and deaths. Starting with births, we have Born This Year, Kate Bosworth, Aziz Ansari, Ah. Emily Blunt, Ah. Lupita Nyong'o, Greta Lee, Henry Cavill, Donald Gleason, Greta Gerwig, Chris Hemsworth, Mila Kunis, Lamorne Morris, Andrew Garfield, Zoe Kazan, Donald Glover, Jesse Eisenberg, Felicity Jones, Rebecca Ferguson, Adam Devine, Adam Driver, and Jonah Hill. Oh my gosh. It's all the people who are like, Right above us in age, you know, yeah. whose movies came out when we were teenagers. Yeah. I mean, I'm born 10 years after these people. So that makes sense. Yeah. That's crazy. It's always astounding to me. Who's who's born on the same years. Yeah. Uh, then some big debuts this year. We have Matthew Broderick, Jim Carrey, John Cusack, Vincent D'Onofrio, John Goodman, Nicole Kidman, Rob Lowe, Rick Moranis, Sarah Jessica Parker. Kiefer Sutherland, and Leah Thompson. Mm, yep. Lots of uh, 80s fame coming at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have some deaths. We have Robert Carson, who was a screenwriter. He won Best Story with William Wellman for the original, original A Star is Born. Mm, wow. Um, then we have George Cukor. Oh, no. No. Director. Uh, so he had five nominations and one win as best director. Hmm. 
And of course, his best director win was for My Fair Lady. Yeah, wow. Um, then we have Tennessee Williams. Of course, <laughs> very classic playwright. He adapted many of his plays to the screen as well. And, you know, numerous movies have been made of his plays. Oh, yeah. One of the greats. The great American um, Gothic writer. Then we have Joseph Ruttenberg, who is a cinematographer. He was nominated for Best Cinematography 10 times. Whoa. Um, and then he won four for Best Cinematography. Um, his wins were for The Great Waltz, Mrs. Miniver, Somebody Up There Likes Me, and Gigi. Wow. Very different. Gigi yeah. and Mrs. Miniver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very. <laughs> Um, but he had nominations from the 30s all the way till his last one was for Butterfield 8 in 1960. Oh, wow. Nice. Yep. So he had a very long career. Um, then we have George Bruns, who was a composer best known for his many Disney films. Um, we have John C. Howard, editor. He was nominated once. He was nominated once for best editing. Burnett Guffey who was a cinematographer. Um, he was one of the more prolific film noir DPs. Um, he's like one of the, the cinematographers who's, who like is the most responsible for that look of film noir. Mm. Um, he shot over 20 of those types of films. Wow. Um, he was nominated five times and he won twice. Oh, nice. Um, he won for uh, Best Cinematography Black and White for From Here to Eternity. And Best Cinematography for Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, wow. Nice. Two great films. Yeah. Um, next, we have Norma Shearer. Oh, Hard to believe she was still living all wow. the way to the Good 80s. Good for her, man. Um, she was an actress, and she received six nominations, and she won once for The Divorcee. Mm-hmm. All the way back in 1931. <laughs> I was going to say, like, in the 30s. <laughs> That's the third um, Academy Awards or second Academy Awards? Yeah. So she was the first person to be nominated five times for acting. Oof. Uh, just first person in general. And she and her brother, Douglas Shearer, were the first Oscar-winning siblings. Yeah. And she's one of the, like, people who helped found everything and get everything yeah. started. Original member of the Academy. All that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Wow, what a life and a legacy, man. Um, next, we have E. Preston Ames, who was an art director. He was nominated eight times and had two wins. Um, he first started working when he uh, helped with some of the designers. He was a design assistant on The Wizard of Oz. Mm. Um, and he won two Academy Awards for art direction for An American in Paris and Gigi. Oh, nice. Um, then we have David Niven, who oh, was an actor, yeah. of course. He won Best Actor for Separate Tables. Um, he, of course, was in Around the World in 80 Days, and he hosted the Academy Awards mm -hmm. a handful of times as well. Um, next, we have actress Lynn Fontaine, who uh... was nominated with and worked with her husband, Alfred Lunt. Of course, she's she has a much bigger presence in the theater scene, specifically theater in New York. They have a they have the Lundfontein Theater named after them, mm -hmm. which is where I saw Beauty and the Beast as a child, which oh, was monumental in my life. Let me tell you. Um, and last but not least, we have Vittorio Nino Novaris, who was a costumer. He was nominated 
five times and won twice for Cleopatra and Cromwell. Nice. Um, Some bits of news for the year 1983. Uh, More films received an R rating than in any previous year up to 1983. Wow. So breaking records there, (laughs) pushing boundaries. (laughs) Um, Star Wars Return of the Jedi was the first film to be released in theaters that were like fully THX certified. Ah, okay. Breaking new sound barriers. (laughs) Um, HBO begins creating its own content. Uh, So it makes its first show, which was not necessarily the news, which ran until 1990 and the first movie that they ever produced, the Terry Fox story. Nice. So HBO is now creating content. They're in the game. Um, in February of 1983, the last episode of MASH airs, breaking the record for the most watched single TV program in history with 125 million viewers. I just think that's wild. Whenever I hear that stat, I'm like, did re- that many people really cared about MASH? I, yeah, crazy. I know they did, but it's just hard for me to believe. Um, and then another big piece of just entertainment news, Michael Jackson's Thriller music video debuted on MTV in December of 1983, changing the world of long form music videos. (laughs) Changing the Um, world forever. (laughs) Yeah. It was then released on VHS, selling over 9 million copies, becoming the best selling quote unquote musical on VHS up to that point in history. Wow. Wow. This year, we had the 35th Primetime Emmys. Uh, Cheers wins, beating out MASH's last season for Uh Best Comedy. (laughs) Crazy. Um, Second City Television sets a record by sweeping nominations in Best Writing in a Variety, Music, or Comedy category. Mm. So they had every nomination in that category. Whoa. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. So they were destined to win. I suppose so. Um, so then we have the 38th Tony Awards. Best play was The Real Thing, and best musical was La Cage of Falls, and best revival was Death of a Salesman, starring Dustin Hoffman and John uh-huh. Malkovich. There you go. Um, and some fun acting awards that were given out. Um, actors who won Tonys this year were Harvey Firestein, Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, Cheetah Rivera, uh, so Joe Montaigne, a lot of really fun people. Christine Baranski, all wow. won Tonys that year. Nice. And of course, Mike Nichols won another Tony for Best Direction of a Play for The Real Thing. There you go. So now we are on to Terms of Endearment, starting with a recap. Hopefully this jogs your memory of this film. Oh gosh, yeah, I hope so. Emma finally escapes her overbearing mother, Aurora, when she marries a young English professor, Flap, against her mother's wishes. They stay close despite their constant bickering. Eventually, they move to Iowa so Flap can get a better teaching position and start having children. Emma and Flap begin to grow apart. Emma can't pay for her groceries one day, and a local man, Sam, offers to pay, and they begin an affair together, partly because Emma already suspects Flap has been cheating on her. Aurora, growing more and more lonely, begins having a relationship with her neighbor neighbor of several years, Garrett. When Emma finally discovers Flap's affair, she leaves to go stay with her mother again in Texas. While she is gone, Flap accepts a job in Nebraska. Emma resolves to try to patch things up, going back to Iowa, and then moving with him and their children to Nebraska. Once there, she realizes he also wanted the job because the woman he was sleeping with also moved to Nebraska. 
Shortly after the move, Emma is diagnosed with terminal cancer and it progresses rapidly. In a final connection with her mother, she entrusts her children to her care. And then she dies. Yep. It's sad. It's so sad. It was just so interesting watching this movie because it's so very clearly the precursor to a lot of the, like, uh, it's a precursor to a lot of the, like, female-driven media that comes later, you know, as I was watching, I was like, how can you not think about Steel Magnolias and Gilmore Girls and these things? And of course, Terms of Endearment is not directed, produced, written by women at all, but, you know, these, like, central flawed women at the center of the story and the multi-generational stuff and you know all that good stuff well and these types of characters who are specifically the overbearing mother is you know a very common like character trope of this era too for sure so it's interesting to see like this film in another long line of those types of films where Mm -hmm. you know that type of character is getting its due and all of these like great actresses are getting to play this type of character for the first time which is yeah yeah well and what's interesting is like they all are nuanced in different ways and some are more villainous than others and some are more you know fleshed out and like lovely and you know it it's just uh it's definitely a trope i think it's a very clear product of the 60s and 70s Mm -hmm. but it is nice because i would say that all of the ones we've watched so far these characters are really well written they actually are they're both like lovable and hateable like you're on their side and then you're like that is terrible that is a terrible thing to do so kudos to shirley mclean for yeah being in this line of these women. Well, and we always knew Shirley MacLaine could do it. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so getting into this film, it had a budget of $8 million and it grossed $165 million. Um, nice. So it was number two at the box office, only behind Return of the Jedi. Wow. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> which like, uh, goes you... to show how popular this was. Yeah. I guess everybody picked what they preferred. You either were a Return of the Jedi person or a no, no, I'll just go see Terms of Endearment. And part of it is that, like, I don't know, there weren't a lot of other really popular films this year. Some of the other ones are Flashdance, Trading Places, War Games, Octopussy, Mr. Mom. So, like, (laughs) they're not really films that have lasted. Uh So, really, these are, like, the two from this year, Return of the Jedi and Terms of Endearment. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just start with this funny quote. Um, this was in the trailer for the movie. Come to laugh, come to cry, come to care, come to terms. <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. Uh, someone felt really good about themselves for writing that. Yeah, the marketing team was really <laughs> proud of that one. Um, so the story originally came from writer Larry McMurtry. Um, we've talked about him and it won't be the last time we do. Um, He wrote a lot of novels that took place in Texas in and around where he grew up. Um, He wrote the novel of The Last Picture Show. I was just going to say, I thought maybe that was it. Yes. Um, And then he, of course, would go on to write the script with his writing partner for Brokeback Mountain. Ah, okay. Um, Terms of Endearment was the third novel in a loose series based around characters living in the city of Houston. Um, So Emma appears as a character in both of the first two books in the series, and then uh, Terms of Endearment focuses on her and her Uh, mother's lives and relationship, whereas, like, she's kind of a supporting character in those books, Yeah. but this one is, like, really about her. Gotcha. Um, It's interesting to me, too, how the young women characters at this time, they, like, 
are so girlish, you know, and mm. then so yeah. tragic too. Like, I don't know. It's so weird that they get terminal illnesses and die and like leave their children motherless. And like, it's just such a strange cultural phenomenon. It's very like, it's very like mythical and like soapish huh. in a yeah. way. Like they're sort of creating a new mythos around womanhood, I feel like. Yeah, that's a good description of it. Interesting. Um, the sixth book in his series is a direct sequel to Terms of Endearment that follows Aurora, and it is called The Evening Star, um, which also was made into a movie with Shirley MacLaine reprising her role. Um, and it was not successful. It only made $12 million on its $20 million budget Uh-oh. Yikes. Um, in 1996. So it was made a lot later, which is probably part of the oh, problem. Yeah, right. Um, so director James Brooks had spent a lot of his career in television up to this point, having worked consistently in TV since 1965. Um, he was the creator of two of the biggest comedies of the 70s and 80s, uh, being The Mary Tyler Moore Show and then Taxi. Mm. Um, he was very curious about directing a film uh, and was sent the novel Terms of Endearment by a producer who told him that Jennifer Jones had already been attached to it to play Aurora. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd, of course, won an Oscar in the early 40s for the Song of Bernadette. Um, Brooks said, quote, The book was sent to me as a vehicle for a specific actress. I read the book and I had a great emotional reaction to it, but I didn't want to do it without preconditions, without saying it had to be the right person. Hmm. Um, he was able to convince Paramount to sign on to the film with him directing and writing and producing, um, but that he was going to cut Jones out of the deal. Oh, wow. Um, that sucks. Then studio... <laughs> yeah, it's really bad for her. I guess he just did not want her to be in it. I don't yeah. know. Um, then studio head of Paramount, Michael Eisner, wrote him back a note, quote, Terms of endearment. Go picture at 7 million. Deliver Christmas of 82. Um, it ended up taking a little longer than anticipated in pre-production. So it didn't end up being released until a year later in uh, the holiday season of 83. Mm-hmm. Um, Brooks ended up reaching out to Shirley MacLaine, who he had pictured for the role while she read it, and she almost immediately accepted. Um, he was happy to have her on board because, in his words, quote, she was the only one who ever saw it as a comedy. Ah, smart. Of course she did. Of course she did. Yeah. Well, and she definitely has, like, the, that dark humor yeah, sensibility. absolutely. And that's the character type that she ha- plays and has played her whole career. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, then Sissy Spacek was cast as Emma, uh, which oh, obviously she did not get to do the film, um, but we'll get there. Brooks added the character of Garrett, the astronaut neighbor, to the story as more of a real partner figure for Aurora than just the flings that she had in the book. Ah, uh, um, So he as a character is not in the book at all. Oh, interesting. Um, he wrote that character in the script with Burt Reynolds in mind. But oh. Burt Reynolds ended up declining the role to star in Cannonball Run and its sequel, and then Stroker Ace. Uh, and I thought this was a really funny um, interview that Burt Reynolds did later on with Larry King. Um, so I'm just going to read this back and forth between the two of them. King, did you ever turn anything down you regretted? Reynolds, oh, woof, yes. <laughs> like? If I say it, Larry, my IQ drops to about two. Yes, but you're honest. What did you turn down, Bert? Terms of endearment. Terms of endearment, the Jack Nicholson part? Yes. Yes, what didn't you like about it? 
Oh, I absolutely loved it. I loved it with a passion. Jim Brooks had written starting over. I He had a lot of me in that part, but I had promised a friend that I would do another picture. And I took the other picture, which was Cannonball Run. So you did Cannonball Run, but that's Burt Reynolds. You promised a friend? Yes, but Cannonball Run didn't do badly, by the way. Uh, it made a lot of money, but there's no awards in Hollywood for being an idiot. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so, of yeah. course, I mean, you know, Jack it, Nicholson wins an Academy Award for this, and Burt Reynolds just goes on being sort of an action star. Yeah, right. Well, it's like when all the, like, Marvel people turn down stuff that could, like, be real stuff because they have to right. keep doing their Marvel stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, both Paul Newman and Harrison Ford read for and were offered the part before it was offered to Nicholson as well. Hmm. Um, Nicholson said, quote, I've always wanted to play older. One of the things that motivated me with that character is that everyone was starting to make a total cliche out of middle age crisis. They were dissatisfied. They hated their job. I just went against the grain of the cliche. I just wanted to say, wait a minute. I happen to be this age and I'm not in any midlife crisis. I'm not an object of scorn or pity by anybody 10 years younger than me. There's got to be other people like me, so I'd like to represent that in this movie. That's smart. That's a good approach. And it's funny that he, that's what he thinks because watching this movie, I definitely oh, he's feel a disaster. the opposite of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he is a, a character of he's scorn. He's a mess. Yeah, absolutely. So, he's definitely going through something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, that's what he felt. Well, and it's funny that he frames it that way because when you're mentioning those other actors who are being considered for it, he is so much rougher than any oh, of them yeah. ever would be. <laughs> and so like, this is his like polished version of the character. Okay. I mean, he's messy. He plays messy, schlubby people. So he is a messy, schlubby person. <laughs> yeah. Which great. He has awards to show how beloved that is. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, he does it very well. Um, so then comes uh, Sissy Spacek has to drop out of the film. Um, and so the role of Emma is then offered to hot newcomer Deborah Winger, who had just done Urban Cowboy, in which she had also replaced Sissy Spacek. Sissy's <laughs> like, I got this girl on speed dial. I, she can be here. <laughs> yeah, just call her up. She'll do it. Yeah, um, I need a friend like that. <laughs> the other person who was weird for me in this movie was John Lithgow. Um, uh, yeah, I did not like that. He's not an attractive person. No, I would so... never believe anyone would have an affair with him like that. <laughs> Just like, it, and it's like, I understand that they're showing like, you know, the kindness and that she's like desperate for connection and blah, 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 blah. But it's just so awkward. Yeah. And weird. Well, and I understand like, I don't know, having an emotional affair with him or something. Yeah, like sure. being that type of, I don't know, but it just was weird that it's like. Now I'm going to go have an affair with you. I don't know. Yeah. And she's very carnal about it, too. Like, yeah. he's kind of gentlemanly, even though it's an affair. He's still, like, kind of trying to woo her or whatever, be nice to her, do things to help her out. And then she's like, let's go to this abandoned house and just, like, go crazy on each other. <laughs> I'm like, him? Him? <laughs> um... But John Lithgow, he ended up filming all of the scenes that he did in only three days when he was given a break on Footloose. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting. So another big piece of this is that there are a lot of rumors that were started and that continue that 
McLean and Winger did not get along and that they, in fact, like hated each other while they were making this. Huh. I had a Um, weird feeling about that, too. Maybe I heard that somewhere as well. It's just kind of one of those Hollywood things. Um, So about this, the director, Brooks, um, in his uh, interview with Film Comment, um, he said this, quote, No, they didn't go out, they didn't talk into the night, they didn't pal around together, but each of them understood better than anybody else alive what the other was going through. The bonds were so deep and singular, they could take any kind of behavior and not be damaged. So everybody would say, look how they hate each other, and you'd find them turning to each other and playing a scene brilliantly. It's Mm -hmm. like estranged family members in a way. Whenever the situation demands, the estrangement is gone and the familial qualities are there. Interesting. I think part of it is that, like, that weird thing where it's like, oh, all women should be friends with each other. Why aren't they best friends? Why aren't they palling around? And why aren't they doing this? It's kind of those feuds from the past of, like, uh, Greta Garbo and Joan Crawford, where, like, (laughs) eventually Joan Crawford was like, oh, I thought you didn't like me. Oh, I thought you didn't like me. Oh, well, I didn't have a problem with you. Like, Yeah, and it's like you're doing the same job and you're women that understand each other. It also goes to show that there's this weird sense of like um, the public needing performances from actors outside of their job, right? So their job is to be on set and be performing on this set. And the public demands, and they even do, I mean, people do this constantly, especially with like fandoms now, where they demand this sort of public persona where it's like, you know, best we're playing best friends in this movie and we're basically best friends in real life. And like, we just have mm-hmm. such an affection for each other, like as mother daughter or as husband wife or whatever it is, you know, where there's supposed to be this like camaraderie. And sometimes there is like, sometimes you truly work with people that you're like, dude, this is the best. Like we're friends. Like we are hanging out because we have this in common, but also because we like each other. But like, we don't force lawyers to go into their office and be chummy with all the other lawyers they're working with. They work together and hopefully they get along and do a good job and then go home. And for some reason, actors are not allowed to do that often, which is <laughs> Well, and also strange. like there are so many other people who are not public facing people who like maybe the actors are best friends with like right. the costumer or 100%. the cinematographer or the assistant yeah. camera people or like the grips like you don't know what happened on the set yeah you don't know who they're buddy buddy with and the last thing I want to say too is there's technique right so as an actor there is technique to create relationship with the people that you are performing with because you are not mother-daughter and some people lots of people I would say the majority of actors I think like to at least like facilitate some kind of relationship with the person they're working with. So that like, especially if they're like the leads of the thing, they have some kind of rapport or like shared language, whether it's like through physical touch or through the way that they communicate, whatever. That's a very common thing, but it's not across the board because there is literal acting technique. You're working with coaches, you're training with people that are not that person. So when you're rehearsing the scene, you're often rehearsing it with your personal coach and then going to set and then working with a different person with a director in between the two of you. So it's like, yes, you may have a relationship with that person and that can be really great and helpful for a lot of people, but it's not required. So whenever these things come up, that drives me crazy. And, like, to add to that, too, like, 
we just talked on just we talked about uh ordinary people with timothy hutton and mary mary tyler moore and they like didn't speak to each other almost the whole time filming as like a tactic to yes yes i mean it was set up that way Mm -hmm. so they didn't become buddy buddy purposefully so that their performances were more actual 100 percent. because yeah it can sometimes go the opposite way you have someone you're an enemy with in a film and they're actually a really cool person and so you're Mm -hmm. like chummy outside of work you know and that also works for people Whereas like that example, sometimes you need to have that separation to keep your craft the way it needs to be for yourself. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. Um, adding to this conversation of being friends with people that you work with, um, McLean commented on her relationship with Nicholson um, and she mm. really got along with him well. Uh, partly I mean, because you can tell they're, they're having like, fun. <laughs> they're like sort of the same age. They've yeah. been in the industry for a long time, you know. So it makes sense. So she said, quote, we're like old smoothies working together. (laughs) You know, the old smoothies they used to show whenever you went to the ice follies. They would have this elderly man and woman who at the time were 40. They had a little bit too much weight around the waist and were moving a little slower. But they danced so elegantly and so in sync with each other that the audience just laid back and sort of sighed. That's the way it is working with Jack. We both know what the other is going to do, and we don't socialize or anything. It's an amazing chemistry, a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Mm, see, that's the best. I mean, what a great working relationship to have. Yeah. Well, and that relationship is also very different in the movie. Like, she right. has to have a like a deeper, like more interesting affection for him than she does for her daughter yeah with them yeah of course with those relationships you share more or less because of what it is yeah Mm -hmm. and i think you were right also to mention like there is this pressure on women to either be like very best of friends or to be in a like fight in some kind of feud or whatever yeah and yeah you're not allowed to just like have co-workers (laughs) yeah so that's what I have to say about that film. Um, I mean, it's a middle of the road best picture winner for sure. It's enjoyable, yeah. but it's definitely, I mean, it's not even the best of these like 80s family genre like dramas. So yeah. like, yeah. And like, I think even it just the- didn't have a lot of competition. For sure. And even the performances are great in it. But like, I like Shirley MacLaine and other stuff more yeah. and I like Jack Nicholson and other stuff more you know so it's like yeah totally fine totally good but yeah definitely a, a little bit of a dry year for sure um with that we come to the last segment of our show in which we thank the academy oh, for boy. things relating to this film the people in the films the ceremony what would you like to thank the academy for today Kristen well, first, since we were just talking about it, I would like to thank the Academy for co-workers. We uh-huh. all want good co-workers, right? Of course. We all want good. And as an actor, I want good scene partners. I want people that I enjoy working with, that I trust, that I feel good about like their creativity and what they're bringing to the scene and what I'm bringing and that I'm being respected and all that kind of stuff. But you shouldn't ever force anybody to have to have this public facing persona of like we're a team because we're the Avengers or something stupid like that. Let people get along when they get along and let people just like chill out when they don't. And they don't have to prove anything to the public. Being an actor is just a job as we've learned nothing from the strike. Let actors just be normal. Let them be middle class. (laughs) Let them have normal jobs. Gosh. Yeah. 
Um, I would like to thank the Academy for HBO. Ah, here she comes. Um, yeah, it's just interesting that they, the niche that they have cratered out for themselves in this time in history, in the like 70s and 80s, and now they're creating some programming. And, you know, they'll go on as a company to choose to produce very, very interesting work. Um, uh, and mm-hmm. they have a long standing history of producing very high quality and interesting work. Not all, all of it is that way, but they have a good track record. And yeah. so, congrats. And they're still here to today them. doing that. So, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and I would like to thank the Academy for people who create the whole product themselves director, producer, writer. There's been a few of these, and they've I would say this is the least interesting of all of them is this movie. Uh, Mm. A lot of these other people who've done it have created monoliths like uh, return of the King and parasite and no country for old men. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing. I think it's something we all as creatives who like to like make stuff. It's something we hope to be able to do is write that amazing script and direct that amazing script to the point that it wins best picture. (laughs) Well, and not to mention some of the other films that like didn't win these, but were like had those people that created films like this, like, like ordinary people is one of them. Yeah, like, right. He didn't win for all those categories. Yeah. And Warren Beatty did the same thing and like yeah. Sylvester he, Stallone yeah. and And I feel like those people, they're all very visionary, right? It's like everything everywhere all at once is such a complete package. It's it's this thing that like needed people to write it and have the vision and direct it. And so it's just cool when like all of that comes together as like its own unique cultural thing. Yeah. And we still have people doing that today. I mean, Greta Gerwig is the big one right now who's right. doing a lot of that. A lot um, of directing her own work and yeah. And Jordan Peele, obviously, too. Yeah, for sure. Yes, very cool when you get the opportunity to do all of that. And I, my final thanks will go to success being found in multiple ways, uh, specifically for Burt Reynolds, who <laughs> didn't necessarily get to be a success because of this film uh, and in fact you know turned it down and was not a very critically acclaimed actor uh but was very successful in other ways the same that other actors are i mean you know a lot of actors have to pick their lane you know they're going to be in big commercial things or they're going to be in acclaimed things so he had his lane and he did it to large success fun yeah make a lot of money and there's nothing wrong with that (laughs) Good work, Burt Reynolds. (laughs) Well, and with that, we leave you for, uh, I mean, there's another episode coming out. Yeah, we're back on track, baby. The strike is over, right? Yeah, so we will be releasing back on our normal schedule and uh, continue working our way through the Academy Award winning Best Pictures. Thank you for coming back to us, for joining us again. We have missed you. We've missed doing this. Sorry Mm -hmm. if we're rusty today. It's been a minute. Yes, a very long time. Yes. Um. So then, you know, after you've listened to this one, join us again, uh, because our next episode will be bringing you a new Academy Archives. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and Thank Academy Pod on X. 
If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.